and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, that is okay. We have pew Bibles in front of you. And so if you're grabbing the pew Bible in front of you, uh, this passage is on 228 in the, the regular print. There's also the large print. So if, it's, if you have the larger one, it's on page 288. So again, 228 for the regular print, 288 for the large print. And you'll remember where we left our discussion last week, that, that David is fleeing from evil King Saul, and he parted ways with his good friend Jonathan, and he knows now officially that King Saul is intending harm against him, that he's being pursued. And so as he runs away, he has no provisions, no food, no weapons. He is in a truly desperate situation. And so we'll see how he flees to a town called Nob, which was a priestly city where the, the tabernacle, this is the the precursor to the temple that would eventually be in Jerusalem. And so he goes to the priest seeking help, seeking provision. So again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one with you. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you struck down, in the valley of Allah. Behold, it is here, wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dance in, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them 
and pretended to be insane in to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard then akash said to his servants behold you see the man is mad why then have you brought him to me do i lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence shall this fellow come into my house this is the word of the lord let's pray father we we pray for our understanding of your word we pray that the the words of my mouth the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight o lord our rock and redeemer amen as we go through the journey of life we face moral decisions every day you face moral decisions probably every hour constantly through life we're facing moral decisions and a moral decision is a decision a choice that you make that has moral implications of obedience to god or disobedience to god it can be right or wrong and of course some moral decisions are obvious obviously right obviously wrong there there's no debate it's completely clear in our mind that doesn't mean we always do the right thing but we know what we should do but then there are decisions that are more complex on the surface that there's a a lot at play there's moral complexity and so we is it right is it wrong we're not sure we're we're trying to to navigate our way through difficult situations of course we face many of those during covid we face those during election seasons as you're trying to decide whether to vote or who to vote for there can be moral complexity is there a right and wrong answer what is the right and wrong answer and in our text today we see three morally complex decisions three morally complex decisions the first is from david the second is from ahimelech the priest and then the third is from david again and so we're going to look at these morally complex decisions and try to understand what's going on in this text so that we can better navigate our way through morally complex decisions in our lives and so here's the the first morally complex decision in our text look in your bible at verse 1 it says then david came to nob to ahimelech the priest and so he arrives in this priestly city remember that shiloh had formerly been the the priestly city in israel but then early in the book of first samuel it was destroyed by the philistines and so now this is where the ark of the covenant is located the the tabernacle is located and we know that the ark was moved to several locations as well within israel and so david arrives it's it's hard to imagine the exact situation but but i imagine it being at night and david knocks on the door and then ahimelech the priest a descendant of eli the priest comes to the door and it says that he's he's trembling he's nervous he's afraid he, he doesn't know exactly what's going on and we can speculate that that maybe he knew of the schism between david and king saul and he was wondering why david had arrived we don't know exactly why he was nervous but he's clearly afraid 
And then look at what David does in verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. So as you look at that, you say, Is David telling the truth? Is he speaking what is true? And I came across a handful of commentaries that tried to say that he was telling the truth, but that he was redefining the word king, and that he meant God is the king. And so in that sense, he could be telling the truth because God had sent him on a mission. But I didn't find those arguments convincing. But I think he is clearly lying. He's speaking verbal falsehood. He's trying to mislead the priest, Ahimelech. And we can understand this. It's not strange to us why he would mislead or speak verbal falsehood to the priest, because he was afraid, understandably afraid. He has no weapons, no food. He's on the run. He knows that Saul is pursuing him. He is facing this, this desperate situation, and he needs help. He needs assistance from the priest. But then also, he may have had good intentions, that he wanted to potentially protect Ahimelech, to give him plausible deniability that if he was confronted by King Saul, that he could honestly claim, I didn't know what was happening. And so I think that there was likely a lot of moral justification that went on for David in this situation. But with all of this, you can see the, the moral complexity. This is not an, an easy situation to navigate. Is he doing what's right? Is he doing what's wrong? What is the correct, right, God-honoring action in this situation? And if you were in this, this situation, would you do anything differently? And I think that as we evaluate his action, we get clues in our text. Overall, it's descriptive. It's, it's not telling us whether it was right or wrong. The, the narrator doesn't come through and say, and David sinned against the Lord in his lies. But yet, we have hints of what the narrator is thinking. So, so look at verse 7, and you see that there was a, a servant of King Saul there, Doeg the Edomite, who oversaw Saul's herds. And so he was a foreigner, a descendant of Esau. And we don't get any more information. But what we'll see next week is that he becomes an informant to King Saul, that he goes to King Saul, he reports exactly what the priests did, exactly what David did. And then in rage, we'll see next week that Saul calls Ahimelech the priest, and on the testimony of one witness, he sentences him to death along with 85 other priests in this terrible slaughter, this terrible impact of this lie of David. And then as you look in your Bible, you, you see the, how David evaluates his own action, his own lie. So, so look with me in chapter 22, and at the very end it says, but we're actually, we'll look at verse 20, it says, but then one of the sons of Ahimelech, uh, the son of uh, Hytub, named Ab Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Ab Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And so you can see this acknowledgement of David. That, that he, he takes responsibility for the death 
of the priest that would follow from his action. And so we can see that what he was doing was, was not right just by the fruit of that action. And that's why a 17th century Puritan named John Flavel said that it was nothing but fear that made David play the fool and act so dishonorably as he did. That he was being driven by fear to this dishonesty. And there's a, a principle in Scripture that we are to speak truth in every situation. That there isn't a, a biblical justification for lying, for speaking what is false. I mean, you could think of the direct commands in Scripture, such as Exodus 20, verse 16, part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or Ephesians 4.25 let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And this is rooted in the very character of God. The Bible tells us that God never lies, that Christ is truth, that we are to be imitators of God, and that we are to imitate the God who is truth and who never lies, to speak truth in every situation. But then we raise objections to this, and we say, well, does that mean I have to say everything? Do I have to always just lay all of my cards on the table? And the answer is no. You'll remember actually back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when God sent Samuel to anoint David as the future king of Israel, that Samuel was nervous about going, and God said, when you come to the city, tell them that you're there to offer sacrifice. But he was allowed to omit the true purpose that he was there for, which was to anoint a future king to replace King Saul. And so we see divine sanction for omission of truth for a certain cause to, to preserve life. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a verbal filter. Sometimes people will say whatever is on their mind and say, well, I'm just an honest person. I just say what's true. I don't hold back from truth. But we're commanded in Scripture to be slow to speak, to be quick to hear. We're commanded to speak the truth in love, that there is a, are many times in life that we should keep our own minds in our head <laughs> rather than speaking them. And that's not a, a form of dishonesty. And the, the famous example of that in just pop culture is the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey, where he's the, the lawyer who is cursed to tell the truth for a certain period. But as a result, he just says everything that's on his mind. He has no filter. And that's not honesty in speaking truth in the biblical sense, that we are to speak truth, which involves building people up in love. So that's the, the first objection. But then another objection to the idea that we should always speak the truth is, you could put it in, in words like this, what about the Nazis? Um, that's always the question, that you're in World War II Germany, you're hiding Jews in your attic, and the Gestapo knocks on your door and says, are you hiding Jews in your house? Do you have to tell the truth in that situation? And there's so much debate on that, we can't fully answer that question. There's a, a great article on this uh, by Vern Poitras, a professor at Westminster Seminary. Um, if you were just to Google, it's available online, Lying Truth, Vern Poitras, you can find it. And he takes the position that it's, there's never biblical justification for speaking verbal falsehood. That in that case, that there, there would have to be the, the belief that God provides a way of escape. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
And it's hard, of course, to factor everything in. Um, and that's where we have to trust the Holy Spirit. I mean, if heaven forbid we were ever in that kind of life and death situation, that, that God would give us the words to speak. And then also we would have to know that he's gracious no matter what decision we make in those kinds of complex moral decisions. But yet there's this sense that, that God will provide a way of escape where we can preserve life but then also speak the truth. And this has application for us today. That some de- decisions can feel very complex, and, and sometimes they can feel justified for us to, to lie, to speak direct verbal falsehood. We could say, well, I don't want to hurt her feelings, or I don't want to make him cry, or I I don't want to have a hard conversation. I don't want to lose my job. I need to be able to support my family. All the ways that we can justify deception, not speaking the truth. But our call is to, to speak the truth, even in morally complex situations as we see here in our text. So that's the, the first morally complex decision this decision of David to lie. And we're saying that, that we believe David made a mistake, that he, he sinned against the Lord, and we see the consequence of that. But now let's move to the second morally complex decision in our text. And we see this in verse 3. So look there in your Bible at verse 3 of chapter 21. So David says, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or or whatever is here. And so David is asking for food, for provision. In verse 4, the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be placed by, replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. And so from our perspective, we may miss the moral complexity at play here. But if you were to look in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 24, you don't have to turn there right now, but if you're taking notes, you could write down Leviticus 24, verse 5 to 9, when God is giving his instructions for the worship of God's people at the tabernacle, he describes the, the bread of the presence that would be in the holy place. And there was a table, a lot like this table, that was in that holy place, outside of the veil into the most holy place. And every week on the Sabbath, they would place bread on that table called the show bread. And it's very clear in Leviticus that that bread, when it was taken away and replaced, was only to be eaten by the priests, that it was holy for the priests, not for common use, for, for common consumption. And so then when, when David asked for bread, Ahimelech is facing this morally complex decision. On the one hand, does he follow the letter of Leviticus, chapter 24, and refuse to provide bread for David? Or Does he show mercy? Does he show hospitality? Does he aid David on the journey? And of course, he decides to give him the bread to to bend the ceremonial law as it's laid out in Leviticus 24. And so we can ask the same question that we asked for David's action. Was this morally complex decision right or wrong? Well, in the immediate text, we're not told whether it was right or wrong. It's just describing what happened. But 
take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, chapter 12. And again, if you're using the Pew Bible, this is on page 970 in the large print. In the regular print, it's page 766. So Matthew, chapter 12, and I'll begin in verse 1. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so you see what's going on here in this passage, that Jesus is with his disciples. They're gathering a small amount of grain on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of the time were looking at that and saying, you're breaking the fourth commandment. You're breaking the Sabbath command. This isn't right. This is unlawful. And then notice where Jesus turns to defend his action, that he turns to our passage from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And just as someone who reads and interprets and applies the scripture for a living, I find it fascinating how Jesus is applying Old Testament historical narrative. That Jesus isn't just saying, well, it's in the Old Testament, it's something that was written a long time ago, it has no bearing for us. But Jesus sees direct application in the principles from the decision of Ahimelech to his own decision with his disciples. And you'll see the bigger principle that he lays out. He says, if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so then you can, you can see this contrast between David and Ahimelech. That David was facing this morally complex situation. He made a hard decision and made a wrong decision that had terrible consequences. But part of the problem was that he was being driven by fear. That whenever we're driven by fear, at the root it leads to a bad result. But then you look at Ahimelech, also facing a morally complex decision. He makes the right decision, that that Jesus agrees that it's the right decision. And he was motivated, according to Jesus, by this deeper principle of mercy, that he understood that the, the ceremonial law which is different than the moral law of the Old Testament, that the ceremonial law had to to bend for the sake of mercy and hospitality to someone in need. And so we see this the, the unbending nature of God's moral law, but then yet the, the, the bending nature of the, the ceremonial law with this deeper principle of mercy. So this also has application for you and for me here today. That sometimes we're in a situation that's a lot more like David, where we have to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I know your simple, basic command. Help me to obey your simple, basic command. To not, to not bend to fear and to pressure of the outside world. Or sometimes we find ourselves in a situation like Ahimelech. And we face moral complexity. What's the right decision? 
And in that case, our prayer might look more like this. Lord, what does obedience look like in this situation? Lord, please don't let me use your word as a club to hurt other people, but show me how to apply your word in a way that, that brings life and is motivated by, by love and mercy. Show me, Lord, what this looks like. So again, that's the second morally complex decision. But now let's move into the third and final morally complex decision here in our text. And we'll circle back to David again. So turn in your Bible with me back to to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And look with me at verse 8 in your Bible. And you'll see how David asks for weapons. He says, I don't have a spear. I don't have a sword. I need some sort of military provision. And which I, I love this. I mean, that they have Goliath's sword on hand. Remember, this is the sword that Goliath wielded, and it was a sword that David used to cut the head off of Goliath after he defeated him back in chapter 17, and that they had brought it to the tabernacle as some sort of religious relic, I guess you could, you could call it. And David says, yes, I will take that sword. There's none like it. So he takes the sword of Goliath. He flees from the city of Nob. And then where does he go but to Gath? And who else was from Gath in the Bible? Goliath, yeah. <laughs> that that he, he takes Goliath's sword and says, well, where should I go to escape the king's sword? How about I go to Gath, taking Goliath's sword, and, and then expect some sort of good result to come from this? So he shows up in the Philistine city, and I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he thought that it would be the last place in the world that King Saul would look for him. That's plausible. Maybe he thought that he could serve as some sort of anonymous mercenary for the, the Philistines in Gath, and that no one would, would recognize him. But of course, that's not what happened. As, as you look at the, our text, immediately he is recognized and ironically, also, they know the, what the Israelites had been saying about him. Because it says that, did they not sing of this one? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And notice that they also call him the king of Israel. That this is David the king, which is ironic because he's not a king yet. But they were even recognizing that this is the guy who's going to become king in Israel, isn't it? And so he is not a friend. He's an enemy. And then you'll see in verse 12, it says that David took these words to heart and was much afraid. And so that's the great understatement of biblical language. He took it to heart and was much afraid. And then he, in a desperate act to try to escape, pretends to be insane he changes his appearance. He, he lets drool run down his beard. He starts to scratch on the, 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 the gate. And, and so then the, the king of Gath says, Hey, what, this guy's clearly insane. This is not David, the great warrior. And I have enough crazy people here in my court that I don't need another one. Let's send him away. And David manages to escape and flees back north into Israel. And so as we look at this, we again sense the moral complexity that where would he go to flee? Did he make the, the right decision here to flee to Gath? And as we work our way through the book of 1 Samuel, we can pay attention to David's spiritual development. That in two weeks, we'll, we'll look at chapter 23, and we'll see how David at each step is inquiring of the Lord. He's seeking the Lord's guidance for every decision. But here, there's no indication that he's seeking the Lord, that he is praying about his decisions. It seems like this is the, the fight or flight response, that he's just going, and he's not considering, and then each step, it's having these, these terrible results. It's not leading to the safety that he was seeking. And so I think that we can 
begin to see this response when we turn to David's poetic reflection on this. So I know we're turning to a lot of passages this morning, so we're going to turn to one more passage. Uh, So this is Psalm 34. Again, the Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, if you turn there. Um, This is on page 432 in the regular print Bible and 547 in the large print. So again, Psalm 34. And so this was written by David. And look with me at the preface to this psalm. It says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And as a side note, it says Abimelech, and scholars speculate that that may have been a title rather than a name, or, or some on the other side speculate that Achish may have been a title, so it's not a, a contradiction, but it's just a use of a different term. But it, So David is writing this psalm out of this experience of fleeing to Gath and having to pretend that he was insane and barely escaping. And so how does he reflect on this great fear that he felt in the presence of the Philistines? And so look with me then at verse 4 in the psalm, and he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So it seems that he's coming to terms with the fact that he's been driven by fear, fear to lie, fear to flee to Gath. But then the sense of, I called out to the Lord, and he delivered me from my fears. Or skip down to verse 11, and he says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. But what's the answer to being driven by the fear of man and to deceit and deception and to bad decisions? Well, the answer is the fear of the Lord. He says, he'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So there again, you see that he's recognizing if you're going to walk in the fear of the Lord, you're going to speak truth. You're not going to speak deceit. This movement from where he has been in this, this chapter. Or verse 17, he says that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And that's such a beautiful verse for us because you'll notice the condition says when the righteous cry for help, And then the promise, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And that's so important for you and me today, that we will face morally complex decisions where it's hard to discern what is right, what is wrong. We're we're balancing biblical priorities. What do we choose? And what we see here from Scripture is that when we ask for help, when we cry out to the Lord for help, that we receive this powerful promise of God that He will hear, He will deliver. And that promise is for you here this morning, that God is speaking to you through His Word, that you may have complex moral decisions Decisions that you're making in your life, and you're wondering, what is the right path where I can best serve the Lord and honor Him? And the the Scripture is offering this promise. Cry for help. Turn to the Lord. He will hear. He will deliver you out of all your troubles. But then as we wrap up today, you may have the, the nagging sense of doubt. What if you make the wrong decision? And that's where I find extreme comfort from this passage in 1 Samuel. That as a pastor, I make so many decisions that have moral implications for people's walk with the Lord. And there's always the question of, am I making the right decision of what I say in a particular conversation, and I, and I know that I fail in so many ways. But then when I look at this passage of David, that, that he's failing 
on multiple occasions to make the right decision, but we sense God's grace to him, that God is gracious in the complexity that he was facing. And as he walked with the Lord through these difficult situations, that he slowly drew closer to the Lord and came to know more of his faithfulness and his love. And it's the same for you and for me, that that we may make the wrong decisions. But as we continue to pursue the Lord, we see his grace, we see his mercy, and we know ultimately that he is gracious because of the, the greater David, Jesus, our Lord. That we know that he is gracious to us in the moral complexity of this life because what we see here in this meal, that as we, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we recognize that, that Jesus entered into a world of moral complexity, taking on a true human nature, truly God and truly man in one person. And that Jesus, as he walked through his ministry, was constantly facing hard moral decisions. And in fact, you read through the Gospels, people were constantly trying to trick Jesus. They tried to ask him questions or put him in situations where he was forced to choose between two bad options. And that Jesus always found that way of escape, the way through by maybe asking a question instead of giving a direct answer or remaining silent instead of speaking, that Jesus knew how to perfectly navigate his way through every moral complexity of life in complete faithfulness and complete obedience. But then ultimately he went to the cross where he suffered and he died. And because of that, we can trust that God is gracious. Because when you fail and you recognize that you made the wrong decision and you turn to him in repentance, you can know that if you've put your trust in Jesus, that your sin is counted to him on the cross and that his perfect righteousness is counted to you and that you're received not because of your own merit and goodness, but because of his work for you. And so you can be confident in his grace, his faithfulness. But if you're here and you've never repented and put your trust in Jesus, we're, we're glad you're here. We want Hope Church to be a, a place for you. But we would encourage you not to take this. And the reason is that it would be hypocrisy. It would be going through the motions. And it would ultimately be spiritually damaging, according to the teaching of Scripture in First Corinthians 11. So we'd encourage you to wait, to ask questions as this unfolds. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church or a member of a Presbyterian church, uh, but to, to be one that has put your trust in Christ, has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, not bound by the action of another church from taking this, but ultimately coming, coming as one that can profess the faith that we hold together. So turn with me to the Apostles' Creed. This is on page 10. And we use these confessions of faith and these creeds in our worship service because it, it unites us with other believers throughout the ages who have professed these same words, the, the same faith in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what he has done for us. So let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, and when he gave him thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward. We can come down the center aisle whenever you're ready. We have gluten-free, and Ernie will be bringing these around if mobility is an issue. So feel free to raise your hand, and Ernie will be happy to bring those to you. We have gluten-free here on the table, so if you come up through the line, you can grab this if, if you need it. It has both the juice and the bread. Uh, but for the rest, I'll, I'll be here. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. John will have the cup, and you can take the cup, return to your chair, and then we'll take it together at the end. Let's pray. Father, we are dust. We are limited. We are sinful. And as a result, when we face complex situations where we're balancing different biblical priorities, we can so often fall off the horse on one side or the other that we are not like our Savior Jesus who could perfectly navigate it. But Lord, we know that we have your grace when we do fall to get up again. But also, Lord, we cling to your promise that you hear us when we cry out to you for help, that you deliver us from all our fears. And so, Lord, for anyone who's afraid this morning of anything, we pray that you would meet them in that midst of that fear, that they can cry out to you, whether it's an irrational fear or a rational fear, that you would deliver them from all their fears. And Lord, I pray that we would not be driven by fear to, to lie or to say something that's not true because we want to make others happy or somehow protect ourselves from what we perceive as the result of telling the truth. But we pray that we can become people of truth, but also people of mercy, that are constantly extending your mercy and not trying to use your word as an excuse not to show mercy and love to those around us. But we pray for us to, to know your path through. And Lord, we pray that as we take this meal this morning, that we would be strengthened, that this is holy bread, the, the bread of not the presence in the temple, but it's the bread of, that you've given us in the new covenant. And Lord, that we are able to take bread that is set apart for you, not because we are good enough, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that we have our identity in him. And so we come by his merit, his life, not our own, and we take this bread that is holy to you and this cup. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in your mercy through this meal for your service throughout this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ's body for you. The blood of Christ. So now please stand with me if you're able. We'll turn to our final song in Christ alone. <laughs>